HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43. And today is Tuesday, September 8th, 2015. We're back from our summer break with some special guests, including uh, Chris and Eric from Greenpoint Beer and Ale Company and uh, Patrick from the Keg and Lantern. We're doing a Greenpoint Beer Show, Greenpoint Brooklyn, happening place. I, I was there today and uh, walking around and uh, welcome Stephen Valland from the Brooklyn Brew Shop, uh, who's going to be our co-host for the season. Welcome, welcome, man. Thanks for having me. I'm you excited. Know, one reason that um, Stephen's going to be our co-host, uh, we had uh, Ben Keene, the editor of Beer Advocate, was a co-host this summer, is that it, he and uh, Eric Cachet wrote Make Some Beer, Small Batch Recipes from Brooklyn to Bamberg. And I was really taken with this book because each one you kind of have an inspiration for a recipe and, 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 you, and your, kind of your journey, you travel to a lot of breweries around the world. And uh, I never knew that about you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking of you. I know you guys have the Brooklyn Brew Shop Beer Kits, but I really think you guys wrote a great book and I love the story. So Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're going to have some fun. So, so you did a little uh, research. You, you went out to Greenpoint last night and checked out some, some of the places that we're talking about today. I did, yeah. I did a uh, Greenpoint beer tour. Definitely wanted to make sure I knew what I was uh, talking about. It's been a while since I've uh, visited a few of the places, but I had a lot of great beer at uh, your establishments. So. All right. So we got, we got Eric and Chris from Greenpoint Beer and Ale. Many of us know you as Dirk the Norseman. Which is like the front. So tell us how that works. So you've got you got one name for like the front part, and then you make beer in the back, and it's always been confusing to me. So you guys tell us about what, what this setup is like, and then we'll talk about how you guys met too. So so the space is about six thousand square feet. In the back of the space is the brewery. It's a five barrel brewery. The bar restaurant is known as Dirk the Norseman. We make beer in the back of the restaurant. We also distribute the beer as well as sell the beer on premise there at Dirk the Norseman. So. About 40% of our production is on-premise. About 60% is sold outside uh, to bars, restaurants like yours. So you you guys met. Tell us how you met. Because I know there was Browery Lane where Eric was working, which is also on the same street, right? Mm-hmm. Right in Greenpoint. It's about six, seven blocks away, something like that. Um, 
Yeah, Chris and I both met when uh, Browery Lane was opening, um, and we both were the first two employees there. So we met Ed, and we both worked there for about five years, and when he wanted to get this new project going, um, Chris had the idea of opening a brewery as well. So Ed sort of put it in his hands, and uh, as the opening date drew drew, uh, nearer, um, I wanted to get involved as well. So I left Browery and I went over to uh, Greenpoint Beer and started when Chris started. And then right near you, too. So I think one reason we, we, we picked the Greenpoint show is because Patrick's been on a couple of times from Kagan Lantern. He was on a cask beer show that we did. Tell us about, about the Greenpoint Brooklyn scene because it's pretty cool over there. Yeah, and we all actually met at Browers Lane um, uh, for our homebrew club, the uh, Brooklyn Bruisers. Uh, and actually, a number of people have gone on to become professional brewers from that group, including. Uh, transmitter and um, uh, Pete at Finback and starting uh, Kings County Brewers Collective. Um, you know, Kuzme and Mary have been there quite a bit too. Although they might they might not pledge their allegiance to us and might have to side with the Home Brewers Guild. But um, uh, yeah, so we met there and uh, Kagan Lantern kind of started out of um, the owner having some extra space in the basement of, of the restaurant and um, uh, look, looking to start a brewery there. So he he put an ad out and. It started circulating in our homebrew club, and um, I brought in some homebrews, and he liked them. So um, I guess we're the second brew pub in Greenpoint, uh, opening shortly after uh, Greenpoint Beer and Ale. Cool, man. Let's take a walk down. So so we're on Greenpoint Avenue. Tell us what it was like going there last night. (laughs) Uh, Sure. I mean, it's... it's a it's a great spot. Uh, well, we started in uh, Bur- I always said Brewery Lane. I'm realizing now I'm, I'm wildly wrong. Or Brewery Lane, but uh, that was Browerige. Browerige. Yeah, many different pronunciations, but yeah. So yeah, we st- um, I guess yesterday we started in Brewery Lane, uh, then head to Keg and Lantern, then to Dirk the Norseman, then to Torst, and uh, you know. Played a nachos and many beers later. Had a great day. Um, but we always like starting at Brewery Lane. I feel like it's a great place for um, for for Greenpoint beer. It's kind of the locus uh, point and like kind of the starting point for a lot of uh, what we kind of now see as Greenpoint beer. Um, do you? Th- I'm wondering if if there's anything about Brewery Lane that kind of kind of carries toward like beer in uh, Greenpoint as a whole. It seems like really unpretentious. I love walking in sure. there because the first thing you do is kind of. I, I would ask say so. I, I would definitely. Uh, whenever I first came in there, Eric had the manager job, and he built the beer program at Browery Lane. And at the time, we had nineteen taps and shelves for well, six cooler doors full of refrigerated beer, and you know enough for about three hundred bottles. And the beer program that Eric built there was. Uh, rotating draft selection and also picking out beers that weren't familiar to a lot of people. So he he, he drew beers from all over the world uh, th- through his knowledge. His his dad was a home brewer. Uh, he grew up, you know, in a home brewing family. Uh, he he home brew beer. He, he has a a deep knowledge and understanding of beer and the beer styles from around the world. And what he did there is, is he rotated the selection, and within the community of Greenpoint, we, we built our customer base on that rotating selection and discovering new beer. And that's something that, that's echoed at Greenpoint Beer and Ale Company. That's something that we like to do is, 
give people a chance to discover new styles, to see what else is out there besides, you know, the mass market stuff. So, and you can have a, a lot of different flavors in beer. There's, there's all kinds of different flavors and aromas and, and yeast profiles. Uh, so with that, that rotating selection, our customers, you know, they would come into the store and we'd sell them beer. And we'd say, hey, you know, I know you like this style of beer. Um, why don't you try this one? It's a little bit different, but it's along the same lines, and maybe you'll like it even better. You know, and that's that's what that's the beer program that Eric built there. Uh, and it's something that, that I've definitely, as a brewer, Eric helped me out with my first homebrew batch once I got into the city. Uh, and from that, you know, it's it's been amazing. You know, he, he knows a lot about beer. And he can take you on this journey, as well as a lot of brewers in New York. And it's it's something that a lot of people who appreciate craft beer should really appreciate even more about what small brewers are doing is a, a wide variety a selection of beers that that you can be exposed to, and you can get that you know in, in a local community with people who care about beer and want to bring you along that journey. That's that's beautiful. That's, Touch it. <laughs> Can tell we've been away for a while. I'm like, this sounds good. It's great to be back in the studio. We've been the last three three weeks. The studio was closed, and we we aired some uh, pre recorded cider shows. So it's the first time back. All right, having fun. Well, Eric, you were talking about your beers that you picked at Briarly Lane. So you know what what was your philosophy? I mean, you pretty quickly put that place on the map, and a lot of people that was that's their go to beer shop. I think. Um a lot of it um, comes down to a lack of pretense and sort of making it approachable and, um, you know, not too snobby, I guess. Just just bring people in, make them feel welcome, and, you know, give them some tastes, see how they, re- they re- uh, react to it. And, you know, just don't try to put anyone off when it comes to craft beer because it can be a little bit intimidating especially nowadays with you know what's happening and how many different styles and uh, especially the progress of craft beer in new york city so i think if you make people you know you're warm and you make them feel comfortable i think that's it goes a long way um especially in the the american craft beer world patrick what, what are you guys serving at keg and lantern uh i mean we also uh like the philosophy of uh, making and appreciating a lot of different styles. Um, but we usually have between 10 and 15 of our beers on tap. Um, so it's, you know, that pretty good range for a brew pub of uh, one or two lagers, a couple IPAs, um, usually an English style or two, like a Belgian wheat beer, um, and then a lot of one-off things with weird ingredients like uh, mushrooms and habaneros and all kinds of stuff like that. But... Um, just to go back to what you were asking about Browers Lane and you know what it is about that place, um, I think it is also, um, like Eric was saying, it's sort of bringing people in and, and it's a neighborhood and you know developing sort of a loyal, loyal clientele and having um, you know regulars, um, that classic sort of regulars where they walk in and you recognize them, they recognize you, um, and I think the same goes for uh, Dirk the Norseman and Kagan Lantern where there is a large. Um, uh, those people get off of work and you know they come in to those places to have a beer and um you know enjoy the conversation that that that, that brings so well talking about the beer in our glass uh, what are we drinking now chris 
Uh, th this is a, a pilsner. It's it's based on a, a Czech style pils, Bohemian style pilsner, but it's brewed with all New York State uh, malt, floor malted pilsner from Valley Malt, uh, grown in New York, malted in Massachusetts. Uh, Czech sots, whole cone hops, and a pilsner yeast. Uh, it's four point eight percent. We call it Papa Pils. I like that. Yeah. It's good, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, it's great. It's really nice and dry, floral. Uh, really refreshing on what I think is now 91 degrees. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, um, tell you what, I'm, I'm looking at Stephen's book, and I'm going to keep talking about it the next next few weeks because I really do like it. So, you know, when you were starting, we're trying to circle around, get everybody talking. When you were starting out, this, this is what you did, right? You went and toured different breweries around the world. Yeah, we love um, love understanding what draws someone to become a brewer i think like everyone here started in their kitchens and when you make that that leap where you're just making beer for yourself or for your friends and then you decide that you really like brewing and you think you can make it for whole lots of people and you then you start wanting to make more and more beer so it's always great hearing how people really did get started um we we're really drawn to the brewers that kind of have systems that are piecemealed together uh, that, you know, they might get hand-me-down equipment from other breweries and then figure out something that works for them and come up with their own systems uh, because then you're really drinking a beer that you can only get in one place in the world. All right. So, and ta and so I'm looking at your book, again, Make Some Beer, uh, talking about Greenpoint. You, you, one of your anecdotes is, is about Yepe from uh, Evil Twin, who's part of uh, the tourist. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure, yeah, we, we interviewed uh, Yeppe from Evil Twin and Torst, and the thing that we find the most striking probably about the like, Greenpoint beer scene as a whole, it's, it seems like it's really for locals, yet it has a ton of international influence. Uh, you have, you know, Raven Brewing, or sorry, Raven uh, Importing started as bringing Gaffel and other great German, like, traditional styles. And then you have, um, you know, when you go to Keg and Lantern, you're going to see Polish soccer, and you're going to see, you know, cheap Polish beer. That's what I wanted Pat to tell me about. <laughs> All the, the Polish people in Greenpoint. Yeah, I think you came there yesterday when Poland was playing, and <laughs> yeah, they get, they get pretty rowdy. Um, but uh, they, they do stick to the traditional uh, Zivich, unfortunately. I, I've converted <laughs> some of them, but uh, yeah, we went through a lot of cases of Zivich yesterday. <laughs> and then you... you Jivietz. Jivietz. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> and then you talk to Yepe. I've been to Greenpoint. <laughs> Greenpoint's cool. Because it's true. It really was until a few years ago. It was really... It was, it was a great Polish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and with, with the butcher shops and, and smoked meat stores. And it's only really... I think maybe like five years ago. When did you guys open Browery Lane? Because only like five years ago it was really more like hipsters and stuff. 2009. 2009, Browery Lane was open. Yeah. So I, in the neighborhood, I live in Greenpoint. Uh, the neighborhood has changed somewhat. There is definitely an enormous Polish influence still there. I go to the meat markets and I rub elbows with the Polish people and try to get sausages every once in a while. But... Uh, it's it's a great neighborhood to live in, but it is it's rapidly changing. I would say there's a lot of development on the river, and but that's everywhere, right? <laughs> and and uh, and the thing is, both of your bars, Keg Lantern and Turk the Norseman, seem really geared toward local populations. I imagine you have a lot of people from the neighborhood, but the way that both of your places feel are kind of almost on, on the opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, you guys uh, at Dirk the Norseman are on the water, like 
you know picturesque neighborhood come in after you know going to like smorgasburg and you probably have a lot of you know new yorkers kind of being introduced to beer that way whereas at keg and lantern it really does feel like your neighborhood joint so it's a it's it's um pretty great uh like wondering how you interact with your local community um uh, a bit um good question <laughs> uh, first time i'm uh, getting at the rust sorry <laughs> yeah i mean each has something to offer and uh i think chris you timed it what is it a six minute walk between the two places oh, yeah. so um you know when somebody when somebody comes in there and um you know if they ask the bartender oh, i want to speak to the brewer or whatever and i go up and i'm talking to them and then i, I point them to go to to dirk the norseman you know next i'm like oh you just walk here and uh, make one turn and, and you're you're at the next good spot. So I'll tell you, I think I think this week I'm definitely going to take a trip out to Greenpoint. I was there earlier today, but I'm going back. Maybe I'll go back with you guys tonight. And a big a big shout out uh, our special events coming up this Saturday. Pig Island, pigisland.com. It's all all you can eat. Twenty five chefs and uh, working with Six Point Brewery as well as uh, some cider makers and wine and uh, whiskey. So check it out, pigisland.com. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. L Knife and Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is our first show of the new season. It's uh, Tuesday, September 8th. We've got some great guests. We're talking about Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and uh, cool things going on there in the beer scene. Uh, we got Dirk the Norseman, Browry Lane, and uh, Greenpoint Beer and Ale guys, Chris and Eric here, and uh, Patrick from Cag and Lantern, and Steven, Brooklyn Brew Shops, uh, author of Make Some Beer. So we're talking beer but th- this this beer you poured patrick is pretty great too so what is this a vienna lager uh yeah vienna lager um uh it's, yeah mostly vienna malt we call it the atlantic lager it's like 5.4 percent um but yeah just a really multi um multi lager i did it last year a holiday version of it with uh pecans and cinnamon which i might might have to do again here in the next month or two but um uh yeah i can see pecans in this yeah, cinnamon would be uh, quite tasty. Yeah. yeah uh, when, when you're making beers, so you guys started as home brewers. You were in the same home brew club. I mean, h- how far out can you go? You know, like, do, do you, you know, especially you're, now that you're selling beer, you're not just making home, home beer. Like, are there any, like, boundaries you're giving yourselves? 
You start, Patrick, and you're talking about... Uh, no, I, I mean, we also have a cask program, and we have five-gallon pins that we have to keep on all the time to sort of maintain our cask mark. And um, so I've been using those to sort of let my imagination go, because uh, if they don't work out, I'll just... Um, uh, <laughs> sit there and drink it. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I've been using them to experiment a lot. And then if something works out really well, I'll, you know, make a larger batch. But, you know, in there, I mean... I've used hemp seeds and like I mentioned the mushrooms, um, coconut and chocolate, but those are those are pretty standard for beer. Um, uh, I think in the next couple of weeks I kind of want to do a bagel beer, like a bagel brown ale. Uh, something about breakfast beers. I saw an article recently, and um, that sounds fun. What about you guys? What, what, what are there any boundaries you put on on the beers you're making? Because I know you have different styles. You know, you're talking about kettle sours, and you look back to some historical recipes. I don't think so. I mean, as homebrewers home are the most creative brewers around. I mean, as a homebrewer, you have the opportunity to experiment with all kinds of different ingredients. We professionally brew now, so obviously we have to make beer that's going to keep us going. That doesn't mean it, you know, it has to be dumbed down. We can still experiment, and we can, you know, we've got to a beer here that has sumac and plums in it. It's kettle sour and fermented with seven strains of Britannomyces. So it's there's no restrictions. As long as we can communicate with our customers uh, and and take them on the journey, you know, and let them know what's going on, not try to sell them short, and be honest with them and say, hey, look, this is where beer is going. You know, come with us. You know, it's, it's heading in a different direction. It's new. It might not be what you're used to, but... Try it out, you know. And, and there's and one beer that I, I have on uh, your runner. It's it's like a, the porter beer called Runner at yeah. uh, Jimmy's number forty three. So it's Greenpoint. Everyone because I'm getting I always get confused. I still get confused. It's Dirk the Norseman. Right. That's where yeah. you drink the beer, but Greenpoint beer and ales is the brewery. So sure. at Jimmy's number forty three, we have the Greenpoint beer and ales on draft, and the Runner is like some type of porter. Tell us about that recipe because I know there's a backstory on that. Right. Uh, runner is is a beer that's meant to be ran out to be served quickly as, a, as opposed to a keeping porter and the reason I know this is because Ron Pattinson wrote a book on historic beer styles and he came into the city and he spoke at Browery Lane about a year ago maybe maybe three quarters of a year ago and he has a lot of recipes in this book that he's he's done research on uh, we, we took a, a porter recipe a London porter recipe and we based our own recipe on that. And it's mostly a lot of malts that you wouldn't find today. You know, it's black malt and brown malt and amber malt. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's no crystal malt. So it's, whenever you look at the recipe, you think, how, how, do, how does this work? You know, it doesn't really look like something that would work. But you brew it, and it's amazing. Uh, so Ron's done a lot of work for home brewers to, to have these recipes available to brew uh there's there's other styles in there there's there's a grasser or gradiski gradiski is an old polish style that that we brew there uh it's 100 percent oak smoked wheat beer 3.2 percent alcohol you know it's it's not something for the faint of heart you know but it's it's something that that you can make and serve to someone and say wow you know this 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 is this had a place in time where it was very popular and and you know why not have that that story along with it and and 
feel like you're there. You know, and beer can do that. You know, it can take you all kinds of places. Yeah. Stephen, in your book, Make Some Beer, <laughs> uh, you, you, you reference Ron Patterson. You have a recipe, Once Upon a Time, 1945 Mild. Yeah, we got to interview Ron. Uh, we were put in touch with him by the fine people at uh, Pretty Things Ale Project up in Cambridge. And uh, we uh, talked to him about the 1945 Mild. So it's basically a kitchen cabinet beer. Uh, it was time of war. It was England. Uh, pretty much you were going to make a beer. You are going to use whatever fermentable grains you could find uh, if you were a brewery. And you could actually look at one brewery's recipe over the if you track it over the course of fifty years, you can see that the, their same exact beer was you know five percent ABV higher than it was at you know during wartime. And you're using three different base malts, using using lots of grain that not going to be the simplest recipe that you can create, but you need to make you need to make a beer if you're going to stay a brewery uh during wars <laughs> so uh it's pretty it's pretty incredible to like as you said that beer can transport you and to actually brew a beer based on a brew sheet from you know it can be 50 years I'll ago 100 you, years it, ago it is cool and i'm glad that we all like ron patterson because even I, I i read his blogs a little bit but i, I can't always follow the technical but it is amazing right how, how, how the styles change i mean the war so they had li- lighter Use l- lower malt, right? It was the malt that was expensive, or they needed it for bread or something, right? The grains. Yeah, I mean, there w- there people. really wasn't a lot of a lot of malt to go around, uh, and you know, like maybe in fifty years, people are going to look back on the two thousand and tens as the time when people were making like really tropical IPAs, and they're going to find these historical recipes with like really citrusy Australian hops, and it's going to be like the era of Australian hops. So it's always interesting to see how trends change in beer and how everything is really becoming more like global. Like you can, you can have a beer trend, and it's not like what may have existed, like a Greenpoint like taste. It isn't really realistic anymore. Like now beer is global. Everyone... Like everyone that brews are going is going to you know conferences well, these, these across the doing, country. You guys are doing cool stuff. So you have one beer with New York grains, yeah, and that's that's cool. And is, is there anything like prices of hops or anything affecting you know the way you plan out your commercial beers? Think no, about I, anything. I, I think that we we choose flavor mostly, and and obviously when I want to buy hops, they're outrageously expensive because. You know, there's different ways you can get flavor in beer with hops as long as you know what to do with them. Uh, but I, w- I would say you're right, though, about local ingredients. That's the next step. That's that's where you're going to find more regional flavors and more localized sort of... And, and this is where I'm, I might disagree with Stephen a little bit because you do have the dissemination of information on the Internet, which everybody can access very easily, and that's helped home brewers out become professional brewers tremendously in the past 10 years and so it's but at the same time you're also seeing malt houses and local hops being grown and you're seeing a, a regional access to to ingredients which you didn't really have before so and you're seeing small producers of ingredients localized yeast that you might be able to get that you can't get in other places so the ideas are there but but the technique you know the techniques and the ideas are there but the execution comes back to 
you know what you what you, what's available. What what can you get your hands on as as a small brewer? If you're a large brewer, you know it it might make sense to to have all these ingredients that are you know from <clears throat> this one source because we're making this one beer all the time. But as a small brewer that experiments, we're looking for unique opportunities to to make different kinds of beers. So and that's what this beer that we have right now is. It's brewed with sumac and plums. It's kettle soured and it's you know fermented with seven types of botanomyces. And this this was a, a collaboration with a home brewer, a New York City home brewers guild, uh, uh, Justin Wilson, and he's got a lot of great ideas about beer. Uh, and this is one of them. We brewed this twice. The first time we brewed it with rhubarb. The second time we brewed it with uh, sumac and and plums. How do you brew with sumac? I mean, well, what, what point do you put it in? So what is sumac, anyways? It's like a leaf. Sumac is it's it's not necessarily a berry. They, they call it something different. It's you know a little bit more. Yeah, sumac. it's you a little know. bit like a, a a floral sort of blossom. I'd have to give credit to Dan Suarez. I know you had him on uh, a week or two ago, and he's the one who's been sort of preaching the good word of sumac in the brewing community lately. Um, and he's the one who sort of spurred us to try using it, but. It, it has a really high level of acidity. It also has a, this really bright red color. And um, historically, I, uh, I believe Native Americans would use it to make somewhat of a tea, uh, more of like a lemonade, I guess, in the summer. So if you steep it in water, it becomes very sour and almost cranberry and lemon, raspberry-like in flavor. And the way we used it was to um, add directly to the kettle at that flame out so we just steeped it for 20 to 30 minutes hot um and it changed the color of the beer a little bit and uh gave it a little bit of sort of fruity bright acidity hey, we, we, we brought this back with us you know we we went up to Amagong for the belgium comes to cooper's down event and on the way down i stopped on the side of the road and and cut this sumac off the branches of these trees and brought it back and we put it in the Maggie, you got to tweet a photo of a, of a sumac at <laughs> beer underscore sessions we got we got i got to see what it looks so, like it's it looks like a if you imagine an arrowhead uh with fuzzy red bb's on it uh about eight inches to ten inches tall and it's it's on a tree that can be from about you know i would say Six feet tall to twenty feet tall. So this is these are New York ingredients. This is what we're talking about with Dan Suarez too. Yeah. You're talking about New York ingredients that you're you're going to get here, going beyond just hops and uh, sure other flavors. That's cool. And Patrick, you're you're, you're nodding over here too, man. You, you like the sumac beer, don't you? I, I love the sumac beer. It's um, my wife had actually picked me up some from um, uh, Kalushchens in the city, and. Um, so you, you can get it just to, to use, you know, and make a lemonade or a tea with also. But, yeah, it was already um, – I saw the stuff that Chris had picked, too. And, yeah, it's, it looks more like – I'm trying to think of what it looks like, but it's like a – almost like a cat skill, like a – it's like a cone, like a big like a big uh, uh, hop cone or, or marijuana bud, maybe. Maybe it would be better not that I know what that looks like. But, um, but a big – yeah, a big bud, like, that's red. And then you can buy it just in a powder and make the lemonade out of it. I was trying to use it into the beer after and um, was having a hard time sort of separating the powder from the from the beer, so I think adding it in the boil was pro- would probably be the better way to go. Um, 
So I'm just stealing ideas from these guys as they as they talk. So. Well, that's good. That's why <laughs> why we hang out together. Hey, we're taking a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's been quite a summer. We had some cider shows, and uh, we had a really cool show with uh, Jeff O'Neill and uh, John Siegel about hops and hop IPAs and some history of hops. That was pretty great. And we had a show with some Hudson Valley kids, you know, Dan Suarez, and we call them the New Primitives. So we had a great summer. Hope you guys did, too. And a lot of folks go up to the Belgian comes to Cooperstown. And Oma Gang, we, we were there for four years, and uh, we've missed it. But, um, you know, a lot of good things are happening in New York. And uh, we've been talking about Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and, and, and the beer scene over there. And it's, it's been pretty great. We've got uh, Chris and Eric from uh, the Greenpoint Beer and Ales, uh, Dirk the Norseman, and uh, Patrick from Keg and Lantern, who's, he's like coming on more than anybody else this summer, man. He gets to sit on the cast show. So let's go back. So you've you got a bar in Greenpoint where you're like, you're serving Juviettes, and you've got Polish soccer, but then... I, I like this. It's not even a dichotomy. It's like you've got like the local scene, and then you're making beer and serving Cascale, and you got a cast mark, and that's kind of cool. Like that's that de- definitely is unique. You know, it's not like you're just being a cookie cutter beer bar. Yeah, I mean it's um, it's an interesting spot in that. Yeah, I mean you can walk in one day and be you know overwhelmed with Polish people watching a Poland versus uh, Germany soccer game, and then. Uh, uh, yeah, the next day uh, there's a there's a bike tour group coming in, and um, yeah, it's just there's always just a, a good mix of people. It feels like a a mini New York in that bar in some ways, um, uh, and compared to other spots where it's all you know sort of the new the new Williamsburg or the new um, people that just moved to the city or whatever. It's it's I mean those people are there too, but it's a uh, it's it's this um, combination of everything that makes it that makes it interesting. But how did you guys? So you said at the bar, you guys just decided to put in a brewery system. Yeah, like I said, the owner just had a the the basement was one half of the basement was empty, and um, it was always a craft beer bar. I mean, they had twenty four taps and always serving craft beer. But uh, he had the idea to you know turn it into a brew pub, and um, I saw the space and was uh, wondering how we were going to put it put it down there. But as a home brewer, you uh, you have dreams to to make that sort of thing happen, and somebody's like, I want to put a brewery down here. Um, can you do that? You, you have to say yes and, you know, quit your day job and, and try to make it happen, uh, which, um, yeah, we've been doing it for a year now. So, Great, man. And, and you started work, you started working at Keg and Lantern because you heard about the job at the Brooklyn Bruisers club meeting? Yeah, so somebody just uh, sent that email out um, that they noticed uh, that this brew pub was trying to open in Greenpoint. Um so yeah, a lot of things come from from Browers Lane and and the and the, the Brooklyn Bruisers. But wh- why did you 
you, you got a cast mark, which is kind of prestigious now because it's only a few places in the state to have it. Why did you decide to, to make invest in making cast beer regularly? Well, they, and Kagan Lantern, actually the owner, had had that already in place before the, the brewery started. Um, I think he just appreciated the cast beer. Uh, Alex frequented there a lot, probably pushed him to, a little bit to, to um, you know, get this certification and just to make sure that we're serving it right. Um, Do you serve other beers and casts than the ones you make? Uh, we used to, before we started brewing, yeah, we were serving a lot, like a lot of Kelso stuff, a lot of Captain Lawrence. Um, they were doing one-off casts for us, but um, mostly just our stuff right now. Like right now we have a Belgian wheat beer with poblano peppers. I think we're going to Greenpoint tonight, man. <laughs> I think after the show, we, we're out at Roberta's and Bush, we'll grab a, a pizza, and I think we're going to go over to Greenpoint. What do, you, what do you guys think? All right? So we'll go. What, what, where should we go first? Give us the Greenpoint tour. Uh, stop at Browery Lane. That's Browery Lane. Lane. Yeah, yeah. And then what? Direct to Norseman, then Keg and Lantern? Keg and Lantern. Yeah. All right. Get some food at Keg and Lantern. Sounds good, Stephen. The nachos at Keg and Lantern are yeah. quite tasty. Oh, yeah? I must say. Mini nachos for lunch every day for me. <laughs> and do you guys, uh, do you serve food at, at Dirk the Norseman? Yeah, yeah. We do some smoked, uh, smoked meats, rotisserie chicken, uh, specials here and there. All right, and let's, we, the last beer we had, well, first, uh, what is the beer we have now? Is this yours? Steve? Yeah, so this is a Belgian strong we made, so it's clocking in at, I think, 10 or 11%, and uh, just a big, So you, you guys you guys have beer. the Brooklyn Brew Shop, the, the beer kits. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are recipes that people can buy exactly. from you. This is a, yeah. this is a uh, recipe that uh, appears in our first book, so Brooklyn Brew Shop's beer-making book, and... Uh, but then yeah, people so can order, but they can actually order the ingredients to make the recipes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you want to taste the beer do. we're drinking now, you can. You'll have to make it yourself. That's great, man. So okay, kettle sour. Talk about beer styles. Kettle sours. How do you make a kettle sour? Because we've we've had some shows, different shows about different sour beers. We've talked about gozes. What is a kettle sour? Kettle sour. Uh, our technique. There's different ways you can do it, but the way we do it is we collect our wort, we mash in, and we collect our wort in the kettle, and we. We bring it to pasteurization temperature, and then after we pasteurize the wort, we cool it down to about 115 degrees. And at that point, we'll take malted barley and we'll put it in a grain sack. <clears throat> it's perforated, and we'll we'll put it in the kettle in the wort. We'll close up the kettle. We'll put a line of CO2 on the kettle. And we'll dribble in CO2 on the surface so you don't have any oxygen on the surface of the wort for other things to grow besides lactobacillus. Lactobacillus likes to live naturally on malted barley, and we know it's there. So we, that's why we put malted barley in the kettle. And then we leave it there for anywhere from one to six days, depending on how much sourness we want or how much we want the pH to drop. So lactobacillus is activated in the kettle produces lactic acid uh, once once that happens one to six days we'll take the bag of barley out and we'll boil the wort to pasteurize it again so that we don't carry any lactobacillus over to the cold side of fermentation because we don't want to have any bacteria on the cold side they won't ferment it with whatever yeast that we want is that, is that what most people are doing now? A lot of the sour beers, the new are, are kettle soured. You know, that's our technique. That's what we came up with. 
I think that you know some people are using uh, yogurt to sour the, the wort because yogurt has lactobacillus probiotics. You know. um, there's different techniques. Some people don't boil afterwards, and so they ferment in barrels. We've done that. We, we, but there's there's a lot of different techniques, a lot of different ways to do it. You know, everybody's is has their process, which is you know is determined by their system. Really, you know, how how can you maintain a, a no oxygen, low oxygen environment on the wort so that lactobacillus is the only bacteria that's active that produces lactic acid and no other contaminating organism takes hold. So that's... Patrick, have you made any sour beers at Keg and Lantern? Uh, yeah, actually, through some advice from Chris on the, the kettle sour front. Um, but, I mean, I think a lot of people are making it as with, you know, people are opening brewers that are breweries that are small. I mean, you don't have hundreds of oak barrel stages long-term sours in. You want to get something sour... You can do the kettle sour. It's sort of a quick souring method. It makes a nice clean sourness. Um, and then you can you can still put that into a barrel, and you can still blend it with other beers. You could add sumac to it. So it's a nice sort of base for getting a good acidity. Um, you can grow up the lacto from the grain like Chris is doing or put the grain right into the kettle. You can pitch a pure um, strain of lacto. You can use yogurt. Um but I think I think really the limitation is just you know if we all had you know a huge warehouse with hundreds of barrels and time uh, we would be doing the longer sour method. Um, but I have two wine barrels and like four little whiskey barrels, so you know. It's, uh, <laughs> I know at, Ke- you know, at, Ke- at Kelso <laughs> they're starting to do they're starting to barrel age some sours, and I know I think Chris Kuzme that's one of his jobs over there is working on some specialty stuff. Stephen, do you have any recipes for sour beers? Uh, we don't do too many sour beers, but um, a fun way to actually do a little like mini sour mash at home is actually to to take um, if you're if you're making a beer, let's say um, a gosa, you can take roughly like ten to twenty percent of your grain bill and do like a little mini mash and put that on your radiator. Like it's good in the winter because your radiator is going to keep pretty steady at like ninety degrees, ninety to one hundred degrees. You put some a saran wrap over it to limit the you know atmosphere getting into contact with it and then you can actually add it to your mash uh when it when it's time to actually brew so you can do that the next day and it's a really fun way to make a kind of a little cheesy um but uh lacto um beer at home on a small scale that sounds fun and eric we haven't heard too much from you so what's it like man you guys went from brewery lane to having a brewery yeah i mean it's it's a little bit of a transition i would say um from the homebrew scale to going to five barrels and and trying to produce as much beer as we can on a little system is is you know it's a b- big change but we found some great ways to make our our brewery work um uh as well as we'd like it to we have a variety of sizes of tanks so we're you know one day we'll be brewing five barrels and the next day we'll be doubling into tens or quadrupling into 20 so we have a lot of options and um it seems like we're brewing almost every day now. It's it's really uh, you get better at it and you learn a lot in the process. And you know, Chris um, has his you know brewing a lot of different beers. Um, you know, we do I would say almost every week we're doing you know potentially a new beer. So if we're doing four new beers a month. We're gonna 
you know, try something out. If it works, um, we'll brew it again and we'll tweak it. And it's, it's a lot of opportunity for, um, learning and experimentation and, you know, just trying to make that recipe better and what can we tweak and, you know, having a little system really helps with that. You know, you, you have so many opportunities to make a batch that you really sort of, you catch on pretty quick and you learn a lot. I, I like a lot of the beers that I've had from you guys. You got this kind of like a grassy note to some of them. And um, like that first, what was the pills that we had earlier in the show? Yeah, we, we call that one uh, Papa Pills. I, th- I think uh, overall we, we like to make a dry beer. And that's that may be where the grassy note's coming from. With that first beer that you had, it was Czech Sots hops, which has a little bit of grassy character. Uh, we use whole leaf, whole cone hops instead of pellets. And so typically you get a little bit more rounded hop character with that, but with with those hops, they were a little bit more grassy. Um, but that's that's the Sots, the Czech Sots hop overall. Um, we do another Pilsner, which has Saphir in it, which kind of rounds it out. And, that, you know, I found out about Saphir hops through PJ. You know, we were at a homebrew event down at the Bell House. And, Patrick? And, oh, yeah, yeah. He's PJ? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you had a nickname. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> But yeah, I found out about Saphir hops through him. He had this Vienna Lager with Saphir hops down there. I was like, damn, you know, this is, this is a really great hop. You know, I, I haven't used it yet. I got to put it in something. So, you know, it's it's that community, and it's you grow exponentially with with that community. It starts at the homebrew club, and you really learn a lot there because you have a, lot, a group of people who have a lot of different ideas about beer, and they come and they share them, and then you you know. You take all that and you distill it, and you and you fine tune your beers, and you grow with it. And that's that's New York City as a whole. You know, it's, that's everybody's pushing one another, and that's that's what it's all about. It's you know that's why I've, we came to the city is to push ourselves, and we're doing it. Yeah. All right, man. Steve, you got one last question for these guys? Sure. Yeah. Um, you three are kind of in a unique position where. Like you were brewing at home, then you became professional brewers, but you weren't really just working at a brewery, but you're in large part responsible for building the brewery and the equipment that goes into it. And I'm wondering if there are any lessons that you could now take from your experience as a professional brewer to, you know, if you were going to make a batch at home again, something that was just like a head-slappingly dumb that you may have been doing in the past that now just makes so much more sense. I, I would say overall the biggest the biggest thing for me as a, a home brewer going to professional brewing is temperature control, and that's that's having a glycol chiller on the roof now, and having a degree and a half differential that I can keep my fermentation. As a home brewer, you don't really have that opportunity, you know, and that's something I was, I always thought in the back of my head, you know, if I ever get the opportunity to to make beer on a bigger scale it's going to be great because i can really fine-tune this this fermentation program uh that i have for these yeast and at home you know i I would put my carboys my fermentation vessel in buckets of water and i would feed in ice packs you know just to keep them cool or i'd have a a device that i'd wrap around the carboy to, to warm it up during the winter time so it's Temperature control is one of those things that, that as a homebrewer, you don't really have a lot of opportunity to to get it right. What but about for you, yeah. Patrick? Uh, I would 
I would probably put a drain in your kitchen, uh, and, <laughs> and on the like floor? a floor drain, yeah. yeah, in your kitchen. And uh, you know, the people below you, they won't mind. Um, just put the drain in, and it'll make your life a lot easier. Um, but yeah, temperature control, obviously, very, very important, and probably taking. I take for granted a little bit now that we can just set the temperature, and uh, you know, it's going to ferment and make a good beer. Um, so, as a home brewer, I bought a full size fridge and cut the door off to be able to fit four fermenters in there. So. Um, you can do that. Well, this is cool, man. I think we're going to have you guys back on again because we, we had a lot of good things to talk about. Just reflection on the summer, I, I went out to Grand Army. It's a, it's a great bar in downtown Brooklyn. A lot of our friends are part of it. Daniel Krieger, our speakeasy host, uh, Damon, Damon Bolte, uh, was his bartender and a part owner over there. And a great, great time. Um, just want to give a big shout out Grand Army downtown Brooklyn check it out good cocktails good beer they have folks beer uh, one of our good buddies Travis is, is making them their house house stout so uh, big shout out Grand Army coming up this weekend we got Pig Island our special event pigisland.com with, with Six Point that's out in Red Hook Brooklyn 25 chefs and number one it's a support in New York State Farmers uh, Flying Pigs Farm this year is, is uh, we're buying 25 pigs from them and it's pretty cool and uh, next week Blocktoberfest the New York City Brewers Guild I don't know you guys part of that we are great yeah, with kelly taylor president so yep. that's next saturday right out it in uh, yep. clinton hill brooklyn yeah it's gonna be a good time a lot of good beers what are you guys gonna pour at that event we're gonna pour our oktoberfest beer we're gonna pour uh a Ragen beer it's a german style rye and we'll probably have the hellas gate our smoked uh hellas lager Nice. So that's a great event. I, we, were, we were at it last year, and it's uh, September 19th. Check out New York City Brewers Guild website, Blocktoberfest. All right. In closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors for helping to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to our guests, Chris Prout and Eric Olson from Greenpoint Beer and Ale, Patrick Allen from Keg and Lantern, Stephen Valan from our Brooklyn Brew Shop and Make Some Beer book. And uh, thanks to everybody else for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Engineer Jack Inslee, Maggie Seiden, and Justin Kennedy. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.